It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Utah's best athletes count on flexibility, speed, strength. And the Jazz pick up their 22nd assist. So they count on University of Utah Health. Brielle Soleil puts this game away. And so can you. Leading doctors, a world-class environment, award-winning innovation, care to be great. 14 unanswered by the Utes. University of Utah Health, caring for Utah's best and yours. Schedule your appointment now at uofuhealth.org slash care to be great. Welcome back to Into the Saturday Show here on 97.5 FM, the KSL Sports Zone. Michelle Bodkin, Jay Catch, along for the ride on this Saturday morning. And pleased to welcome in now Matt Brown from the Extra Points newsletter as well as D1 Ticker. Does a great job covering, as I like to call it, the business side of collegiate sports, but more than that, obviously. Matt's been on our station many times before, but Matt, thanks for carving out some time for us here on a Saturday. Hey, it's it's my pleasure, friends. Thanks for having me back on. All right, Matt, we saw you start tweeting about this. We were talking about it literally as you were tweeting about it. Michelle and I both were <laughs> referencing some of your tweets in this. Uh, the IRS has declared the 501c3 designations for uh, college uh, athletics collectives uh, essentially are going to be illegal. I, I don't know. Explain exactly where things stand right now with the IRS on this front. Sure. So uh, you know, big, big picture here. The idea that the IRS would eventually say, hey, you can't use a nonprofit designation for an NIL collective. That's been, that's been out there for a while. You know, sure. I, back yeah. in early 2022, I interviewed a couple of tax professors that specialize in nonprofit law. We've been interviewing CPAs that work with athletic departments, and they said, yeah, there's no way this is going to stand up. The reason it didn't happen immediately is because NIL's new, NIL collectives are new, and, uh, you know, the IRS is many things, but nimble is not one of them, right? <laughs> Bureaucrats <laughs> wanted lots more time to see what, how this market would develop before they, they, they stepped in. Uh, what you saw on, on Friday reported there by Sports Illustrated's Ross Dellinger uh, on three confirmed that we've seen the, the memo has been out there for a little bit. This is the chief counsel for the IRS saying the advice that we're giving now is this is not going to hold up anymore. Um, that, that, that doesn't mean that these are all you know, deactivated from their 501c3 status immediately. What it does mean uh, is that if there's, if there's an appeal or an AG, you know, it does an investigation or after some of these groups have to file their 990s and send in their paperwork to the IRS, they're not going to have their 501c3 status uh, continued. You know, that's always been the concern. It's not hard to get nonprofit status. It's hard to keep it after you send in your first round of disclosure forms to the government and people double check that you're doing what you said that you're going to do. So what you're going to see now are a lot of collective operators call up their attorneys and figure out, is it possible for us to convert to an LLC? Or or, uh, are some of our big donors going to be very angry because they're expecting a tax rebate that we can no longer promise? So with that being said, are these collectives going to have to move over to an LLC status? Or is it possible that some of them could maintain their 501c? Yeah, it is. It is possible that some of them could. So, so the 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 crux of the issue here is what is the true purpose of an NIL collective? If the IRS believes that the true purpose of this organization is really to further charities and not to pay athletes, 
you can still qualify as a charity. And you know, one of the things they're going to look at then is the, the, how much the athletes are getting paid and what exactly they're being asked to do and what the overhead looks like. You're going to have to send a ton of forms. So there's a lot of NIL collectives right now that are supporting G5 or FCS or you know, what we call one AAA programs, you know, Division One schools that don't have football, that are raising relatively small amounts of money, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. And if they're not dropping a bag on somebody to go participate in a charity, there's a chance that they could keep that designation. What the IRS believes, and what I personally believe, and, and many you know, industry experts that I talk to, is that these, these nonprofit groups at major institutions classify themselves as nonprofits, but the real point of the organization is to pay to recruit and retain athletes. And a, a good tell is just to look at the collective's website. Are they emphasizing charity? Are they emphasizing local businesses? Or are they emphasizing give money to be a part of this effort to make our athletic department elite? You're paying an offensive lineman $60,000 to go you know, read the kids at the Boys and Girls Club. There's a lot of things that that is, but it sure as hell ain't charitable. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, Matt Brown from Extra Points Newsletter as well as D1 Ticker joining us here on 97.5 FM DKSL Sports Zone. Uh, I was reading Ross's uh, article, and you, you you did quote this gentleman as well, Jason Belzer, the co-founder of Student Athlete NIL. Yeah. And this quote in the article, I, I just made my day. The IRS may grin and then come back a year later and say, what the bleep is going on? The kid, pr- kid promoting the charity is driving around the Mercedes and tweeting about how great this charity is. And th- th- I think that kind of puts a case in point. What is the point of what you're doing with this collective? And I think, is that... Is that, that's come down to the crux of what the IRS is going to look at here, isn't it? That's, that's, that's exactly it. Like, if you want to keep your 501c3 status, so this is you know, kind of the ironic thing, it's a huge pain in the butt, paperwork-wise, to uh-huh. keep this designation, because you've got to tell the tax man what you spent on everything, Nick, not just what you spent on paper and, like, staples and Internet access, but also, like, every deal that you gave to every athlete and exactly for what. And they're going to, you know, if they audit you, if they – if they look carefully, they're going to see if that matches up to, to fair market value. And we have, like, precedent of people being paid very small amounts of money to do labor and have it be viewed as non-charitable. Like, there are tax examples. And I actually have a reported story on this on Monday from uh, a woman who, who wrote a – you just published a law journal story about this exact thing that, like, there are, like, High school athletic associations that pay people like nine bucks to work concessions, and the IRS says that's not charitable, even though like yeah, most of that money is going to like to pay for like the bus for like the softball team or something. Like the nine bucks an hour you're paying to sell Fritos isn't charitable, and if they're going to draw that thin of a line, then paying hilariously over market value for high schoolers who have no marketability to go do some nominal charity work is not going to stand up. Um, I, I don't think that anyone's going to go to jail over this, although some of the people running a couple of the collectives that I know are are, are really probably should get into an actual legal trouble. But there's going to be a reckoning. Um, and, and this is part of what, one of the big transitions that's really happening right now in the NIL space is that you got 80 of these groups that are set up as, as nonprofits. But almost everybody is realizing you can't really build a collective that's funded by 12 rich guys which is what a lot of these were in the beginning. Like, we're going to go shake mm-hmm. down a handful of our, of our, of our mega-rich friends, and that's how we're going to get $100,000 to go after a guy in the transfer portal. And what people are realizing is that that's really risky. It's risky because the kind of people that are willing to spend $100,000 on a kid in the transfer portal, 
uh, sometimes made their money in sketchy ways, and sometimes that money might not necessarily be liquid when you need it to be. They can be flaky and temperamental, and sometimes those promises don't move through. And then you have this IRS challenge. So what everybody is trying to do, and this is true in at the Utah and BYU markets, and it's true throughout the pack in the Big 12, of the, of the flagship collectives realizing we need to shift our business model to either rely on a lot of small donors, a lot of people paying 6 8 10 12 bucks a month, or actual honest-to-goodness businesses that are trying to set up deals with people that, that are based in market value where everybody wins. And that's hard to do. Because the first year, the market of going for players was way out of whack for the benefit that anybody was getting, and you just can't keep doing that forever. Gosh, that it's so funny that the last segment we were talking about Reggie Fowler, because uh, some of this is sounding very AAF-ish, Reggie Fowler-ish. Um, <laughs> so how do you view this situation as maybe helping to shape and change Overall, how we go about doing NIL uh, at the college level, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about just how fast and loose the whole thing has been, not just from the collective standpoint, but just overall in general. I actually look at this as as a real positive, and I'm not somebody that's predisposed to cheerlead for the IRS, as I imagine most people are here (laughs) uh, in this this market, right? But in, in this particular thing, if you have a guy who's super rich, who is cutting a check for $75,000 to a collective to help pay for a recruit and then gets to write that off on their taxes, that hurts taxpayers. And it hurts anybody, any institution, anything that relies on taxpayer money, um, which I, I would think even if you're, if you're a college sports fan, you look at that and think, like, that doesn't really help my community. Like, my world is not improved if, um, you know, somebody gave a bunch of money to help Colorado football get a little bit better for one year. So I, I think anything that cuts uh, taxpayer grift or, or tax fraud uh, is, is a net benefit. But big picture, I think the NIL industry and world, if this continues to exist in 10 years, which I honestly, it, it might not if we move towards a professionalized model, but it's going to exist. The extent that it's grounded in market realities and, and, and paying people an honest you know, amount of money for honest work is going to be dramatically helpful for schools and athletes and brands, right? There's a lot of people, a lot of companies, I think even in Utah, that would benefit a lot from working with the Utah or Utah State or a BYU athlete, and they're not getting involved. Part of that's because they don't understand influencer marketing. Part of that's because they're worried about regulatory or reputational risk. Like, could you imagine being the company that gets caught up in, in, a, in a tax scandal or fraud or anything, and, and that, how much does that hurt you? And as we move away from naked bag manning, and naked agent profiteering and move towards something that more resembles the actual camp circuit, the actual lesson circuit, the actual advertising world, that's going to be bumpy, but it will be better for consumers. And I think it will be better for athletes who are trying to, you know, ultimately not just earn some money in college, but build professional connections that will set them up after their college career is over. Like that's something that many of these collectives actually do. And it's worth celebrating. Um, and, and, and you, you can't really do that effectively if what we're really doing is money laundering. And that's really what some of these charitable NIL collectives are. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. 
and I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's exactly what Michelle and I came to the point of uh, when we were talking earlier about this is some of these are fronts, it feels like, for money laundering schemes. And I think obviously the IRS yeah. wants to wants to sniff that out. Matt Brown from D1 Ticker, as well as Extra Points Newsletter joining us. And Matt, uh, you know this. I, I've been subscribed to your newsletter. I've been a big proponent of it since the day you launched it. Uh, I want to ask you, you wrote another piece earlier this week for your Extra Points Newsletter looking specifically yeah. at the Built Bar situation in BYU. Uh, you, yeah. and I, I, the, the point you made is when it comes to NIL, get it all in writing no matter what. Explain why exactly it's so important in all these circumstances. No, absolutely. No matter what. And and if, if I can be so bold here okay. from kind of reading between the lines, I think there might be a little bit of Mormon trust going on here <laughs> where there's yeah. maybe a reluctance to build something resembling a contract or getting everything out in front because, hey, you trust the guy on the other side, and they trust you. You're doing this for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. We're all friends. We can, we can handle these kind of things. And this is, this is always the danger of going into business with your friends or anything. You need a contract. And if you don't, and not a contract, you need a written document detailing exactly what is expected of you, exactly when you're going to get paid, and exactly what happens if either of those things doesn't happen. So in the unlikely event that there is confusion, or miscommunication, or something isn't delivered. You have something that you agreed upon when you were still friends to guide you through everything here. You know, I've learned this through uh, through extra points with vendors or mm-hmm. relationships that I have. It's, it's not an adversarial thing. I look at the built issue specifically. Not that built was trying to take advantage of anybody. I think it's very clear built wants a very long term relationship with BYU and in this market. But you have dozens of football players who think that they're owed something. And the owner of the company who thinks something else, the only way that's resolved is if there was communication ahead of time and stuff was written down. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm glad to see that people are getting a little bit of money now. And I hope that that's a, that's a teaching lesson, especially given that many of these players also entered into relationships with marketing companies in your, in your market with this ridiculous crypto thing with some of these other opportunities that didn't pan out. That sets the scale for then maybe you, you get a little bit angrier about the protein bar situation than you might have been had you not gone over three on other opportunities. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We're also starting to see some legislation and lawsuits coming out, um, some yeah. arguments in California yeah. that these kids should maybe be considered employees. Revenue share, yeah. How, how do you view that yeah. as maybe helping to kind of even or maybe not even the playing field and maybe eliminate some of the problems we're seeing here with just straight NIL. Yeah, I, I legit, I honestly believe that many of the NIL issues go away if schools are directly compensating athletes. Like if we're being really honest here for a subset of this market, and I say that's primarily for football, baseball, men's and women's basketball players, and, and, and in your market, maybe gymnastics. A couple, a couple other examples in other places. But the, for, you know, that group, you have NIL deals 
that are primarily meant to be talent acquisition or talent retention fees. I'm giving you this money because you are good at sports and important to this program. Um, and we don't do anything else in the business world like that. If you're providing value for one entity and one entity sets rules and governs you and controls you, that's the entity that pays you. When you have like this weird third party thing, that's where we end up with some of these issues with graft and money laundering, with dishonesty, with the inability to collect what's due. And if you move to a, a standardized model, like everything else in elite sports in the world, that eliminates some of those issues. The problem, of course, is who is defined as one of the athletes that, that gets some of that revenue share and how do you execute it? And, and this is a complaint that I hear from coaches and ADs all of the time that college athletics isn't a monolith and there isn't just one NIL market, right? Like if you're a soccer player at BYU and you might be a nationally elite athlete and going to compete for, you know, going deep in the NCAA tournament, um, nobody's dropping more than a thousand dollars of our bag for you. And like, no one's really making, like no one's really making a profit running collegiate men's or women's soccer programs, especially not men's programs. Like I, I talked to people at Clemson, they won the national title recently they're like, no, we buy the, we lost millions of dollars, <laughs> even though we sold a lot of tickets and, and we're on TV late in the season. The math doesn't work out there. Can't really do revenue sharing if there's no revenue to share, even with like nobody really getting rich in that ecosystem. Um, the complaint that I've heard and one that I actually have some sympathy with is that the California proposed law is using a sledgehammer when a scalpel really should be used. And it's going to create more problems and more problems for athletes then uh, I, I think it's, it's looking to solve. But it is you know, a way to kind of force the issue to have this conversation. And, and this is what I think kind of frustrates me a lot about this NIL world. We're moving towards this system one way or another, whether it's because of the California state law that gets copied, whether it's because of NCAA v. Johnson or the National Labor Relations Board or uh, House v. NCAA in, in 2025. And if not any of those, miraculously, some other court case, eventually – the courts are going to require like, a mandate that some of these athletes are paid directly. <laughs> so if you're in the NIL world, you got to be thinking, like, how does my organization survive that? And if you're you know, Mark Harlan or if you're Tom Homo, if you're anybody in, in this world here, you need to be thinking, what is our plan B and plan C for how to, how to function in this environment? I don't think enough administrators are really credibly take, you know, considering the risk of this happening very soon and articulating what you will do in, in that environment. It's not a hypothetical for something that might happen in 12 years. It will probably happen while all of us still have these jobs. Crazy. Matt, where can people find all your fine work? You bet. You can find me on Twitter, where I am probably spending time that I should be spending reporting. <laughs> you and me both. Uh, on, Matt, on Matt Brown EP. You can find the newsletter, Extra Points, at www.extrapointsmb.com. You could subscribe and get two emails a week for free or uh, subscribe to the premium edition and get four uh, athletic leaders, collective operators, agents, reporters, all in this market uh, read Extra Points every day. So I imagine many of you might benefit from that too. If nothing else, to play our computer game, which is coming out in like two and a half weeks. Yeah. Uh, if you ever want to, to to see what it's like to be an athletic director, <laughs> um, and, but and and play a computer game in the style of like 1986 Oregon Trail, uh, <laughs> I got a treat for you. 
It's called Athletic Director Simulator 3000. It comes out in a couple of weeks. I think you guys will enjoy it. I, I've been seeing your updates. I, I, of course, I read your newsletter every day, and I've seen your updates about this coming yeah. out. I cannot wait to play it personally. I'm a big Oregon Trail oh, yeah. fan. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so we'll t- tell you guys what. Like, I am in the backyard right now, so we don't hear my children in the background. When I go inside, I'll DM you guys a link to the beta so you, you can play it <laughs> okay. and, and uh, see that it's a real thing and not just a bunch of dumb screenshots. My, my man. Well, Matt, thank you so much uh, for a very short notice hopping on and helping us make sense of what's going on in NIL and just the crazy environment <laughs> around it. It's, 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 my, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. I recognize there's not a lot of people who want to get on the radio on a Saturday and talk about tax policy in college <laughs> athletics, <laughs> but I'm that guy. So well. hopefully I didn't bore you all to tears. <laughs> Thanks again, Matt. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. I'll catch y'all later. There you go. Matt Brown from Extra Points. Great stuff. And I think he helped us kind of understand exactly where things stand. It's not a done deal, but it's kind of, as he mentioned, it, it, it's, it's heading that way. It's heading down a certain path. I think we all think is inevitable. We, we see in pro sports, Michelle, mm-hmm. revenue sharing. That's why the NFLPA, the MBPA, the MLBPA, these players associations, which are unions, exist. They collectively bargain with the leagues themselves, and they split the revenue straight. In some cases, it's a 50-50 split. In some cases, it's 51-49. There's just different splits, but they share the revenue. Multi-billion dollar organizations, there's one that exists that does not do that, and that is the college athletics universe. Well, and I mean, honestly, nobody should be surprised that we're here after 2020 and COVID. (laughs) That system got exploited for what Mm -hmm. it truly was. Uh, which was taking advantage of people and their personalities yep. to make a buck, but they're not getting it. But then, huh, we have this thing come up with a pandemic that <laughs> potentially dang- – I mean, as I, hard to say, as we've kind of come out of it, maybe a little bit overblown in some cases. But, um, you know, when you don't know what it is and you're faced with yeah. – we either send them out and make them play and risk their lives and risk their futures uh, so that we can continue to make a buck, but they won't see that. <laughs> uh, you you start, yeah, it, it kind of unraveled from there, to be very, very honest, very frank, um, that these student athletes really technically are employees of the university. And if they can't do their job at certain points, the university suffers. Yeah, it. it- Football and basketball in particular, they generate billions with a B dollars every single year. And they yeah. weren't seeing a penny of it. So, all right, crazy times, but big thanks to Matt. Like, literally, short notice. I, I texted him during that segment we were doing it at the 1030 segment and said, hey, can you hop on, let's do it. So, Matt's a good dude. And uh, trust me, I have subscribed to Extra Points since the day he launched it. This is going back. It's at least three years he's been doing it, I think. But good stuff all the same. But big thank you to him. All right, we'll come back on the other side. We'll get to five minutes of. We've got some stuff to cover on that side. Uh, Rail Salt Lake signing a new striker. Michelle, the 60 and 60 is back. We have two selections already. As they get ready for the upcoming football season, we'll highlight those two players and a whole lot more. Stay with us. This is the Saturday show right here on 97.5 FM, the KSL Sports Zone. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.